This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What happened when Monday this week is all about Halloween Havoc 1990. And if you've recently watched this, you see the big scary mansion at the beginning of the pay-per-view. Well, I'll tell you what, there's nothing spooky about saving money with First Family Mortgage. A lot of people were nervous about interest rates going up with the Federal Reserve, but First Family Mortgage can still hook you up. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And I'm talking to you if you've got a home equity line of credit, credit card debt, or maybe it's time to buy a house with no money down. There's nothing scarier than going ahead and getting stuck paying rent forever. We even have a program to help you buy the worst house on the best street. That scary mansion at the beginning of Halloween Havoc 1990. Well, what if you could fix that thing up and have tons of equity? You could have 60, 70, 80, even $100,000 equity if you buy the worst house on the best street. And we can get you the cash to turn that house into your dream home. And you can do that with no money out of pocket. You can do it right now at 1FMC.com or just give us a call toll free at 888-425-0105. First Family Mortgage, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS number 65084. This is the MLW Radio Network. Welcome to WHW Monday. Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson talking about the great years of world championship wrestling, the NWA, and Jim Crockett promotions. And now let's go to the ring. Here's your co-host. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When... Monday, right here on MLW, and uh, the master of ceremonies, Mr. Tony Schiavone is with us. Tony, what's going on, man? Is that what you're calling me now, the master of ceremonies? Well, it's better than what Lois calls you. Boy, you're not kidding. (laughs) I appreciate that, Conrad. It's good talking to you. Good talking to everyone out there once again on another week of our podcast, as uh, we are uh, just thrilled to be with you again. And I'm excited to be talking about uh, one of the great years, I guess, of WCW, at least match-wise. And that was back in 1990. So there's a lot going on. Man, it's my uh, maybe my favorite topic we've talked about so far. I was such a fan of WCW in 1990. In this pay-per-view specifically, Halloween Havoc was uh, one of my all-time favorites. So it's a big deal to me that we get to cover right. this one. Uh, uh, let me. How old were you in 1990? I turned nine this year. Well, you were snot-nosed fucking punk. I was, and, and I still Were you thought... you the dirt sheets back in uh, back those years? No, come on. Of course not. All right. Well, you never know. You know, they say, you know, you you knuckleheads start fucking early. Well, they're starting really early now. Uh, my daughter finds stuff on the internet and breaks stuff to me, and I'm like, what? Wow. I hadn't heard that. Uh, thankfully, she didn't break anything over the weekend. Bless her heart. Bless her heart. You have raised that girl. <laughs> I didn't do it to her. Dude, it's she, your fault. It's not hers. Let's run through that. She types in WWE in her little Google machine, yeah. and uh, man, that stuff is everywhere. She's not going to Meltzer. She's not going to Torch. She's going to the news sites. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess. Okay, I can tell you don't. 
So, uh, you got any follow-up from last week's episode? It was the very last Monday Nitro. Uh, I got lots of great feedback. Lots of folks checked that one out. What do you think about the show? Any feedback? Uh, our show kind of ended on a downer in a way. Uh, but that's kind of way the uh, the last Nitro ended for us on a downer. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I did see some feedback where, where fans thought I was very honest about what had happened and my thoughts about it. Uh, and I do want to reiterate that uh, nothing about that night or nothing about nothing about that night and my uh, subsequent uh, being pushed away by the WWE uh, made me hate wrestling. I've never hated wrestling, and I think that's well documented by now. But I was pretty tired by that time, and I was going to get a pretty good severance uh, and a long severance, and it enabled me to relax and become a human being once again. So. It all really worked out for me there. That's all. Well, there you go. I'm not mad at it, man. Um, I thought it was a great show. It's available in the archives. If you've missed it, a lot of people have already checked it out. One of our most listened to shows ever. And we hope that this is one of our most listened to shows ever. It's what you wanted to hear. It came down to the wire. Was it going to be Starcade 1990 or was it going to be Halloween Havoc 1990? Either way, we get a little bit of black scorpion in there. What do you want to hear next week? Stay tuned to the end of the show. We'll give you next week's poll topic, and there's only one place to vote on that poll, and it's on Twitter, at WHW Monday. That's at WHW Monday, and this week's poll is already up. So cruise over there right now as you're listening to this and throw down a vote, and be sure to check out our brand-new forum at WHWRadio.com. That's WHWRadio.com. We've got a single topic thread for every episode. So if you've got questions, feedback, things you want to add, little clips you'd like to throw in there to share with other people who are into the show, you can do all of that at whwradio.com. Let's sort of set the stage for the summer of 1990, and we'll start our build to Halloween Havoc, which is what we're talking about today. I guess we should go all the way back, though, to January 3rd, 1989. Jim Hurd was named the executive vice president of WCW and reports are everywhere by the summer of 90 that the Steiners are miserable and want out of their contracts. Supposedly the nature boy is miserable too and wants to go work for Vince. Uh, He's convinced he'll be a bigger star if he's on Arsenio Hall, NBC, WrestleMania, and just all the press that comes from working in the WWF. But then Ole Anderson takes over the booking for the NWA in mid-May 1990. So a lot of people heading into that decision thought that Petrick and Hurd would have picked Bill Watts as the front runner for the booking job. But somehow Ole finds himself in charge. Do you remember the decision to bring in Ole? Was that a surprise to you that he would get the book? Did you think they were going another way? What are your memories of that? Well, if, uh, I, I wasn't surprised, uh, and I always was uh, a friend of Ole Anderson's, uh, and I think most people thought it was a pretty good move because Ole was entrenched in the wrestling business. He had done it before, uh, and uh, if you take a look at, okay, you got a wrestling promotion and you want to have a booker, you back then, it, it's not like you could just go to McDonald's and order one and a, and a booker would pop out. You had to get guys who had experience in the business, and Ole was one of those guys. You know, they had uh, George Scott prior to that, and that was a clusterfuck. Uh, so here they bring in Ole Anderson, uh, and uh, I thought it was a great move. 
for me personally, it was a great move because I've always considered myself a friend of Ole's. Ole and I got to be very close. Uh, Jimmy Crockett used to always say, your friend, Ole Anderson, Tony Schiavone. And I said, you know, I, I like Ole. He's, he's gruff. He's tough. But he, he respects the business. He loves the business. So uh, I think uh, I thought it was a good move. And uh, that's how I felt about it. Uh, did you know prior to that announcement coming down the pike, the unhappiness that existed in the locker room with the Steiners and Ric Flair? Well, I knew the unhappiness with Ric Flair because uh, there are some uh, interviews that we used to do. And I'm talking about local interviews that I can remember. And Conrad, you may be able to find them in the archives somewhere on the WWE Network. Flair used to come in and he used to say, people have been trying to get out of New York forever. I'm trying to get in. He used to say that on some of those interviews. So he was very unhappy. He wanted to go to New York. He wanted to work in the WWE because he thought that the WWE would be a big business for him. Uh, now, as far as the Steiners being upset, th that I was not that familiar with. You know, the Steiners were always kind of gruff anyway, and uh, and I, I wasn't familiar with they, uh, what they thought about it. But I, I do know that uh, that Flair was unhappy. And I think a lot of it had to do not necessarily with the booking, but had to do with uh, with Jim Hurd and the what they perceived as the direction of the business, because Jim Hurd didn't really know that much about the business. Compare him now to Vince McMahon, who grew up in the business. Right. Uh, so for guys who really thought that uh, their careers could take off, maybe they thought that being out of Turner Broadcasting was the best that could happen to them doesn't surprise me to hear that that about the steiners uh but flair i do know that he was very unhappy and wanted to leave now one of the things you mentioned there is that you were in favor of the old anderson hire but it doesn't seem like everybody was into this decision apparently a lot of the young talent uh were upset that he started bringing in names like the iron Sheik, thunderbolt patterson a junkyard dog and everyone jumps on the they're gonna they're gonna bury brian pillman line of thinking now that ole is in charge and Cactus Jack even asks for his release. So Ole mm. starts pushing the horsemen again, and they started a feud with the dudes with attitudes, which you may remember were Lex Luger and Sting. Uh, he wants to do away with heel commentators, and he even does some kind of controversial, you might even say racist angles with the horsemen and JYD. Do you remember there being a split locker room opinion on Ole as the booker? And if so, who do you remember being you know most opposed to that? Well, look, locker rooms are going to have their politicians. Sure. Uh, and locker rooms are going to have uh, people who are outspoken and people who just grumble to people like Meltzer and the dirt sheet people. It, it, it was always like that. I, I don't, I'm not so sure that bringing in Ole Anderson changed anything. You know, we would later bring in Dusty and there were grumblings. There were always grumblings about bookers. Uh, and, you know, I think bringing in the Iron Sheik, you fucking jabroni. Was a uh, was a pretty good move. Thunderbolt Patterson, JYD. I've, you know, only had done business with those guys before, so why not bring them in and give them a shot? You know, I, if it were me, okay, and if I was making good money, and they brought in some veterans, I would look at that as maybe trying to learn from the veterans. Uh, some of this about Cactus Jack wanting his release and uh, the the Steiners wanting his release, uh, wanting their release. To, to me, this this smacks of tampering, right? With contracts, 
people would only want their release if there was somewhere else they knew they could go and make good money. Right. Now, that's just me with some hypotheticals out there. That may not be true. But I, I'm not so I'm, – I'm sure there was uh, people upset, uh, but I'm not so sure that uh, that bringing in the older guys was the reason behind it. So only being in charge actually has Rick change his mind for a short while. Uh, but then, you know, folks start to say once he drops the belt to Sting at the Great American Bash in July that he's a goner. And the yeah. speculation of that is furthered when fans see Rick's wife, Beth, crying during Rick's match at the Great American Bash. I'm sure we'll talk about that bash in the future. But do you remember folks talking about Beth crying? Uh, no, I don't remember. I remember her crying. I don't remember much reaction backstage to that. Let me ask you a question. Folks say that he drops the belt to sing at the Great American Bash. He's a goner. Who are folks? Uh, dirt cheap Locker folks. Room, yeah, dirt, dirt cheap, cheap folks would say, hey, he's unhappy. So if they're going to drop the belt here and put it on Sting, it may be a good indicator that he's on his way out. Well, maybe the world title meant a lot to Rick back then. I don't know. T- to me, uh, to me, the, the world title and not having the world title and the chase of the world title were all in one. Yeah, I would agree. If you, if you lose it and you go a program against the champion – you're still on the top of your sport. You don't have to have the belt around your waist if you're positioned like that. I just I, – I don't get the feeling. I Sometimes I, I think that fans, and especially fans who were fans of the dirt sheets back then, believe that the world title belt was legit. And if he didn't have the belt, he wasn't on top. Right. I'm just saying anybody that he was going to get mad and leave and go somewhere else. I think and, – and, of course, we know Flair left. But I think the reason that Flair left was not about the belt. It was not about uh, the the push that he was getting. It was about, it was about the money. leadership of the company back then. And money. Well, uh, I had money. Of course, Rick leaving didn't happen for another year. Right. Uh, but let's put Rick's level of fame and popularity into perspective for a minute here. President George Bush wanted to meet Rick Flair over the summer, and Rick missed a show in late July in order to make this happen. Apparently, Bush had been trying to meet Flair at the White House multiple times, but their schedules just never worked out. And when they finally do meet, it's at a a Jesse Helms fundraiser, uh, which was the location of Bush's choosing, of course. Of course, if Rick got to pick it, it'd be at the fucking Marriott. Uh, Anyway, there you go. Uh, Rick attending a fundraiser for Jesse Helms, even at the request of the president, caused a little controversy. Do you remember this being controversial or the meeting uh, of him with Bush, not, I mean, president Bush, not no hair, no flair. Right. I don't remember being controversial. I think everyone on our end thought that was a pretty big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know why we didn't have cameras rolling. Right. Well, that's just fucking us, man. (laughs) He's going to meet the president. He is. Well, someone tell us how it happened. Why don't we send a fucking camera? I don't know, because we got our head up our ass, I guess. Well, it's not like it was a great time for Rick. I can't imagine that's his deal. I mean, fundraisers are normally like what? Like a $500 per plate banquet dinner with some sort of dry chicken and unsweet tea? Yes, and not even fried chicken. There you go. And if your tea is unsweetened, it's not really iced tea, is it? Not not in the South, it's not. Not in the South, it's not. (laughs) You know, uh, it's too bad 
that the president and the White House and the Jesse Helms reception back then didn't have Blue Apron back in 1990. Don't, don't you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Because Blue Apron has turned the Giovanni house around. You know, I was thinking about this, that before we started getting Blue Apron at our house, Lois used to always say, does that have enough salt? Does that have enough spices in it? And I would say, eh, it's okay. But now with Blue Apron, because the recipes come with it, everything is spiced, salted, and tastes exactly right. So you can't beat that. And for less than $10 per person per, per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes, pre-portioned ingredients to make those delicious home-cooked meals. Now, we invite you to check out this week's menu, and this is very important. Get your first three meals free with free shipping. You go to blueapron.com slash Tony. Again, not just blueapron.com, but blueapron.com forward slash Tony. You'll love how good it feels, tastes, to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Tony. Remember, Blue Apron is a better way to cook, and fresh ingredients make for a better meal. And that's what we're enjoying here at the Shimani household. And to all my uh, followers on Twitter who have uh, uh, gone the route and gone to blueapron.com forward slash Tony, I'm getting a feedback 100% say they love it. That's awesome, dude. 100%. Well, I don't know what you couldn't love. It's blueapron.com. Check it out, man. Uh, if Lois come, if Lois Shivani can do it, fucking anybody can do it. Yeah, Am I right? Well, you know, that's just her getting off her ass. <laughs> Get off your ass. Go to blueapron.com. So, uh, Flair was injured at a show in Dallas in July, but kept making all of his advertised dates, just not wrestling. And I know a lot of people listening may not really put two and two together there. But, Tony, explain the importance of making a date, even if you can't wrestle. Well, you have to appear and show that your inability to wrestle is legit. A no-show and the fans think, well, he just fucking off somewhere and he doesn't want to come to our town. But when you're there, fans understand that something is wrong, I believe. And as we have talked about many times on this podcast, uh, Conrad, and you've agreed with it, and I know Dave Melcher's agreed with it on his dirt sheets that no shows kill your business. Yep. Absolutely kill your business. And this is just a way to validate that. Yes, yeah, something is wrong, but I'm still a part of the card. You want to see Ric Flair? You'll still see Ric Flair. Exactly. Right. And for, for, for a lot of people, they just wanted to see these stars. Absolutely. You know, could, I mean, I remember going to matches. an angle or whatever. Yeah. Just be a, be a part of the show. Yeah, I remember going to matches back in in Virginia back in the 70s, and I remember seeing one time I saw Black Jack Mulligan wrestle, believe it or not, Thunderbolt Patterson. Wow. We went there, and the match went like five minutes, and we drove all the way to Richmond, and it was one of the shittiest matches ever. And I remember afterwards, we walked out, and Hippie said to me, he said, that thing sucked. I said, yeah, but we got to see Thunderbolt live. So that was okay with us. And we hadn't seen Thunderbolt live before. The reason I wanted to cover so much Ric Flair here in this show is this is the first pay-per-view that WCW ever presented without Ric Flair in the main event. Really process that. Uh, In fact, it was their only second major event without him in the main. Clash of the Champions 6 had Steamboat and Funk in the main event. But otherwise, Ric Flair had headlined every single event until Halloween Havoc 1990. Uh, Tony, do you remember this 
being viewed as somewhat of a risk, kind of akin to the way the WWF was moving away from Hogan in favor of the Ultimate Warrior in 1990? It was a risk. Uh, I don't think there was any question. Not to put Flair on top, but to, to quote Ole Anderson, and I don't think when Ole and I were talking about this, I don't think we were thinking about or he was talking about Ric Flair. Ole told me something that was that I think was spot on about the business. He said, if you keep the same people on top all the time and you keep feeding them people, pretty soon you're going to run out of combinations for fans wanting to see. So eventually you've got to put somebody else on top. Give them a run with being on top and see how business goes with them. He said, pretty soon, and this was long, obviously long before we had Nitro and Thunder, he said, pretty soon the people are going to see every combination possible. Right. Back in the old days of the territories, you used to, guys would kind of run their course, they had seen them, and then they would move on to territories. I can remember Baron Von Raschke having a great run of the AWA, and all of a sudden he shows up in Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Paul Orndorff all of a sudden shows up in Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Jimmy Snuka, all these guys that we haven't seen before, so things are fresh. So I think in an effort to keep things fresh, that's what was going on at that time. And, and I can understand that. Is there a line of concern, at least in your mind, as to whether or not Sting will be, you know, proven as a draw? Or, you know, is there some concern that, hey, was it really Rick drawing those houses through their series of matches? Can Sting stand on his own as a main event and as a draw? Or maybe is Sid really ready to be in the main event as a top guy when he wasn't even the top guy in the horseman? You know, just from the onset, the main event feels like a little bit of a gamble for WCW. Now, there's no question, I, and I think that was because of Sid. I don't. I'm not so sure everyone was sure that Sid was the guy. And I think uh, looking at the match again, and of course I didn't call the match at at Halloween Havoc, but looking at the match again, I think it was pretty apparent he wasn't ready to be one of the top guys. Would you agree? Uh, I'm going to agree to disagree there. You think he was ready to be a top guy? Well, I, here's the thing: when you're saying that, you have to appreciate that. On the other channel, or actually across town, you've got the Macho Man working a main event with the Ultimate Warrior, which we're going to get to. But I think Sid was every bit as qualified as the Ultimate Warrior was, at least okay. in my estimation. I agree, too. I, I agree there. Now, you know, if you're saying, hey, can this guy, you know, hang bell to bell with Ric Flair? Well, fuck, nobody would have been champion. It'd be, it'd right. be Ricky Steamboat, Shawn Michaels, Ric Flair, right. you know, Ricky Morton. You'd have four world champions ever. Right, exactly. Uh, Walmart agrees to carry the WCW Galoob action figures over the summer of 1990. Uh, to say this is a big deal for WCW is an understatement, is it not, Tony? Yeah, and it was such a big deal for us that we talked about it on our, our broadcast, didn't we? Yeah. We didn't say a fucking word about it on our broadcast that I can remember. No, I think on cable, you guys were mentioning it. We were? I, we may not have on this pay-per-view, but... I mean, I remember running down, you know, asking my parents to take me to the store to get these. And it was a big deal because it was something you kind of had to search out and seek before. It may have been at more, you know, niche stores. But Walmart, at least, you know, through the 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 Bible Belt of America, uh, is, is very much a staple of a store. Uh, do you think there's any chance we could get Walmart to carry some of our WHW Monday T-shirts sometime? I would love for them to. Because I wouldn't have to do this much longer. 
Go on over to ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. Tony, when you look at all these ridiculous shirts that we've got up there, which one stands out the most to you? Well, the newest one stands out the most to me, <laughs> and that is the Syracuse School of Journalism Slapdicks. Yeah. You, you told uh, I have us a not lot to of do people it. that I know who went to the School of Journalism at Syracuse, and I have sent them this artwork, just sent them a text. And at the bottom of the text, when I, after, after I uh, put in the photo, I put at the bottom of the text, I go, fuck you and fuck your school. And, of course, then I get a lot of response. I know a lot of people who work with people from Syracuse. This is so funny for me. This is so freaking great. Uh, because, you know, you, you, you like giving your friends shit. I mean, I do. And this is one of the best ways. But anyway, the Syracuse Slapdick School of Journalism, I love, especially now that they've been knocked out of the NIT. I know you are a big fan of the Klondick shirt. I don't know why that is. I don't know what that says about you. Uh, the WHW Monday Blockmaster shirt has been very popular. And uh, my son, Chris, ordered one of the shirts that said, WHW Shivani, what happened when? I said, really, you ordered that? He said, yeah. He said, you weren't going to buy it for me. I said, you're damn right I wasn't. <laughs> you're a grown man now. So there are some, and I know also you like the Air Guitar shirt as well. The Air Guitar shirt was very popular with Jay-Z Flair on Twitter. Uh, Lenny Bakken picked up the uh, Thunder Thompson shirt. We've got lots of fun shirts there. And if you're not in the loop on why you need a pasta steel rule shirt, you should go <laughs> check out the first Nitro. I'm telling you. You're going to want one of these. And the only place to get them, Walmart's not carrying them yet, is ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And, Tony, when you place an order here, what happens not too long after that? Uh, not too long after that, I'll be calling you. Because everybody that places an order puts their phone number in, and I'll be calling you. Now, let me also let you know, I've had a number of people uh, not pick up their phones. And I leave a message calling and thanking them for listening to the podcast and getting a t-shirt at pro wrestling tees uh and i know sometimes you look on your cell phone and you see a number not available and that will sometimes tell you well i better not pick up that because that may be an irs agent or something uh but pick it up because it's probably going to be me on the other end and uh love to spend some time with you talk to you uh, and let you know that I do appreciate you because I really do, Conrad. Uh, this podcast and these t-shirts and you have changed my life. <laughs> what, are you, what the fuck are you laughing at? Oh, my God. Hey, if you want Tony to call you, he'll do it for $25. That's how big of a whore we are. Come pick up a shirt. He'll call and thank you. We'll pretend like we really care about you, but we really just want your goddamn money. Give us $25 at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW right now, slap dick. Okay. Uh, summer of 1990 is when we first start hearing reports of Sid missing shows so he could go play softball. Uh, when do you remember this coming up? And what was the reaction from the locker room or the office when folks realize he's in line for our main event and he's choosing to play ball over work? Well, we were dumbfounded. Many of us were dumb anyway. You could just add founded to that. But we were dumbfounded that he was like that. And most of us didn't believe it was true. Right. Absolutely didn't believe it was true. Uh, 
I never got any, with the exception of listening to things in the locker room or listening to things in the office, I didn't get anything that said, that told me he actually did this. But, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire type thing. Sure. Uh, I, I think that I think that told us, I know that told us, that uh, Sid is not the guy to run with the ball for our promotion. Around this same time, uh, Eddie Gilbert starts working angles in the torch, and he's burying Jim Hurd, talking about Ole Anderson and Bill Watts. Uh, eventually, Eddie earns himself a release from the company with some of this, and he shows up on Memphis TV programmed with Lawler. Uh, a lot of people remember the angle where uh, he hit Lawler with a car in the parking lot. Uh, so it was a hot angle. He made a big debut. Uh, he made a big splash in Memphis. But in one issue of The Torch, Wade Keller asked Eddie, what do you think Jim Hurd does especially well? And Gilbert replied, quote, he dresses very nice. Gilbert also says, quote, Jim Ross is always in his office hovering over him, kissing his rear end, end quote. Uh, others have accused JR of being a kiss ass in WCW before Tony. And obviously he was tight with Bill Watts going back to Mid-South and UWF. But what are your take on Eddie's comments here about Jim Hurd and specifically about JR? Uh, the comment that Jim Ross is always in his office hovering over him, kissing his ass, or is to me is unfounded because I never saw Eddie Gilbert in the office. So how would he know? Right. I also do know that my office and Jim Ross's office were side by side. And Jim and I pretty much stayed in our office doing the work that we had to do. And any time that Jim Hurd would come down to talk to Jim Ross, he would come down and talk to Jim Ross in Ross's office. And I would then end up closing my door because I didn't want to see Hurd come in and talk to me. Uh, so uh, J.R. was not a kiss-ass. J.R. was a guy who had a lot of influence with Jim Hurd and knew it because Jim Ross was a sharp guy. Uh, maybe, that, maybe that in Eddie Gilbert's mind is a kiss-ass. But but I always kind of, uh, and I know he's gone now, I always kind of uh, envied Eddie Gilbert. Why is that? Well, he saw Missy naked, and I never did. Oh, my gosh. Well, I don't think he had to just envy Eddie. Uh, I want to hit you with a hot take here, Tony. Uh, I think Jim hot take. I think Jim Hart gets a bad rap from wrestling fans. Now, before he, really? shit, before he shit all over me, the guy wasn't a wrestling guy. He was a TV guy, and he was hired to do a job. His job was to create a wrestling TV show for a TV company. Uh, and the people he had to make happy were Turner. And obviously he did that because he hung around for a while and everyone wants to slam him and criticize him, but he wanted to work in TV, not necessarily wrestling. And, uh, I get that, you know, his background wasn't this longtime wrestling guy, but he was a TV guy and the fucking company, the wrestling company is owned by a TV company. Uh, anyway, I'm sure we'll talk about Hurd a lot in the future, but what are your quick two cents on him? I got along with Jim Hurd a great deal. Of course, I try to get along with everybody, Conrad. I even get along with you mm -hmm. now, man. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, I didn't like some of his thoughts about the business. In, uh, in 1989 or 1990, around the end of my tenure, when WCW approached me to come back, I met with Jim Hurd and Jim Barnett at the Grand Hyatt in Manhattan, in the city. And Hurd had said to me, he said, uh, he said, I want, I want characters in wrestling that have a historical background. 
He said, I want a pirate who can take off his leg, a peg leg pirate, take off his leg, hit a guy over the head with it and put it back on. I want a hunchback. I'd like a guy like the hunchback, a, a character from history. And the, the key is because he's got a hunch on his back, you can never pin him. And I remember walking out of the meeting and saying, boy, that guy doesn't know fuck all. Uh, but I got along with him okay. He, uh, when I told him, you know, he took over WCW and I, I was still working there. And then I made my jump to the WWF uh, and they owed me money because they paid me extra for pay-per-views. So they owed me money for Starcade 89, Starcade 9, Starcade 88. Uh, and I remember calling him. He took my call. He said, you're not getting the money. And that's just the way it is. And then we threatened to sue him, and he gave us the money. Uh, he was uh, he was at times a very difficult guy, but I got along with him. Uh, and he uh, he depended on me a, you know, a great deal with his syndicated product back then. But I, I think his, his ideas about wrestling were wrong. I mean, isn't he the author of the Ding Dongs? Uh, yeah, it was his idea, and he would, you know, we'll break that down later, but he would say that wasn't the way he, you know, pitched that it should be executed, but it still uh, of course. happened. Yeah, what did he, but, how did he know about executing Ding Dongs? Well. But Jim Hurd was, Jim Hurd oh, was Klein, good to me. Klondike Bill I, knew I, about I, that. What's that? Klondike Bill, Klondike Bill knew about executing Ding Dongs. Boy, did he ever. Did he ever. Uh, tell me real quick, this syndication thing you just mentioned, you said you were critical to it. And I think a lot of people are always curious, like, what else did Tony do besides what we saw on camera? At this point in 1990, I know you were involved in doing a lot of the syndication stuff, but tell everybody what those duties entail. Okay, the duties would entail, uh, once a show was shot, now I didn't book it, but once a show was shot, I was kind of making sure the show would get out the door. We're making sure, and, and I, I would have working under me line producers who would, and they would, with an editor, edit the show down. And then we would look at the show afterwards and say, you know, we, we promoted everything correctly or there's something we needed to do. Uh, I was just kind of in, in charge of it. And I was in charge of coming out with the, four, the final format of it to give to the line producers back then. Uh, JR and I, uh, JR did the same thing that I did, but he did it with TBS and he did it with the pay-per-views back then. JR and I would get together on Sundays and we would, uh, format some of the best of shows, uh, that, uh, they didn't want to fool with. Right. I think NWA pro wrestling became a, a kind of a best of show. Uh, and maybe uh, WCW main event did at one time. You know, it was first promoted as something different, but then it just became a show based on angles. And Jim and I would format that together and shoot the leads. And uh, we, we just made sure the, the shows were intact before they got out the door. And, of course, you know, we had Keith Mitchell who helped us out a great deal. Uh, who was, you know, had been in the business forever, who is, I understand, still in the business. But uh, we were, I was responsible for syndication. Jim was responsible for TBS. In early August, it's announced the uh, WWF is once again up to their old tricks, and they announced that they're going to run head-to-head at the Rosemont Horizon in the suburb of Chicago. And this is just minutes from where WCW is going to hold Halloween Havoc at the UIC Pavilion 
And the WWF actually ran four shows that day. This is October 27th, 1990, uh, one of which was a matinee show in Auburn Hills. The other two were in Oklahoma City and Halifax. But the card at the Rosemont Horizon had Ronnie Garvin, uh, the British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith, Haku, Barbarian, Bossman, Ted DiBiase, Dusty Rhodes, the Hart Foundation, and on top, they were with Macho Man Ultimate Warrior, as we mentioned a minute ago. And this wasn't exactly something new, since the WWF had did this against Crockett in both 87 and 88. But this time, they're competing with Big Bubba Rogers and former NWA champion Ron Garvin and Dusty Rhodes. What was the reaction to Vince booking the Rosemont Horizon to kind of counter-program Halloween Havoc? Uh, by that time, the reaction was, shrug your shoulders. That's the way he does his business. He's doing everything he can to destroy our business. You just got to keep going straight ahead and, and doing what you're doing. I think the fact that he could run the Rosemont Horizon and we could only get the UIC Pavilion, even though we were more downtown than the Horizon was, and the fact that he could run Auburn Hills and we couldn't, uh, showed that he, you know, he was still on top as far as uh, venues were concerned. But back by then, by back then... Conrad, again, shrug your shoulders. It's Vince being Vince, trying to destroy our business. We just got to worry about us. And we'll let the people who book the venues do that battle. There's always, you know, there were always battles. And I really feel the guys who were booking venues were kind of on the front line in many ways. Also in August, we see the debut of the Black Scorpion, which I'm sure we're going to cover in great detail sometime in the future. Uh, in September, Sting is working house shows, and his opponent is either Barry Windham or the Black Scorpion. And the dirt sheets are a flutter with speculation mm. about who this Black Scorpion character is going to be. Will it be revealed to be Sid, Al Perez, Barry Windham? No one's talking. Uh, and WCW seemingly plants the name Steve Kern with the dirt sheets. Uh, Tony, let's save most of our Black Scorpion talk for another show, but let me just briefly ask what do you think of the concept? I thought the concept in uh, when it was laid out was pretty good. And I thought the concept of using uh, the magician to do some of the things on theory was pretty good. But again, in execution, it didn't work out too well. Uh, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with lack of uh, communication, lack of rehearsal. Uh, but uh, I, at first I thought it would be pretty good. Well, and I know looking back these days, everybody wants to shit on the Black Scorpion. Sure. Uh, and, and I'm sure we're going to do some of that on this show and other shows in the future. But it's worth mentioning that the Clash of the Champions 12 with Sting versus the Black Scorpion on top was the most watched cable wrestling match ever at that point, drawing a 6.8 rating with roughly 3 million homes and 8 million viewers. And it's important, you know, just for context to understand this was going head to head with the Pirates and Mets on ESPN and John McEnroe doing a tennis match on USA. Uh, For those of you wondering, on that particular night, Al Perez was under the hood for the match. Uh, Tony, does this rating, when it comes down, sell everybody on the Black Scorpion and cement this as a Starcade main event? I think it was already planned to be a Starcade main event, regardless of what this uh, was showing. I I think what this cements is, uh, and again... You know, you're going to listen to this podcast and think this is Shivani just uh, uh, putting over Oli. But I think it it cements the fact that you needed something different for the main event and or for your, your top angle. And with the Black Scorpion, we did. I mean, it was 
it was kind of like who done it, who is it, and the and the big question. And uh, I did it sell everyone on the Black Scorpion? I think we were already sold on the Black Scorpion by that time, even without the ratings. Let me ask you this: uh, WCW planted the name of Steve Kern in the dirt sheets. Well, I mean, that's certainly what the torch would have you believe. Oh, yeah. Well, um, there you go. Where, you know, they said whenever they would inquire, multiple people would give them the name Steve Kern, but they didn't hear that name outside of the company. So maybe yeah. it was just a internal, hey, here's the here's the company line we're going to go with. Yeah. Never heard that. Uh, apparently in August, there was a big autograph convention where lots of fans lined up to meet Sting. From the police, not Sting from wrestling. Do you remember this ever being an issue or a concern back in 90 when he's kind of your top guy? No, not at all. All right. I think we thought he was music and we were wrestling and it was completely separate. On August 25th, Sid is working in the Meadowlands and he says he injured his hip. Uh, live reports from fan though, fans, though, say he never even took a bump in the match. Well, uh, do you have to take a bump to injure your hip? I don't know. Can't you just turn the wrong way and, and do something? So you think Sid was injured? Well, no, I'm just saying that uh, we sometimes take what fans write to the torch and say is the gospel. Well, he and says I'm, I'm, he, I'm saying bullshit to some of that. Okay, I got you, Bruce. He says he's injured. Uh, so he starts missing shows and eventually the rumor mill starts up and Sid eventually says he won't work the pay-per-view unless he gets more money. So JR goes on the hotline and teases that the main event of Halloween Havoc is in jeopardy as Sid has yet to sign the contract to face Sting. Uh, eventually, it's reported Sid was just unhappy with the role he had in the six-man tags that he was working on the house show loops. And on those uh, matches, he is tagging with both Arn Anderson and Barry Windham of the Horsemen. And he supposedly sa is told they're saving him for the pay-per-view and giving him a chance to learn from Arn and Barry. But Sid says, I'm more over than both of those guys, so they can't teach me anything. Mm. Tony, I don't know what to say here. Do you remember the rumor that Sid was faking this injury, or did you believe it was legit, as you kind of alluded to there? Well, I, I think that, uh, and I think this goes back to talking about playing softball, and, and I, I, Sid was not very popular with the guys. And even had he had a legit injury, the guys wouldn't have believed it. Right. Uh, so I, I was he grandstanding for more money? Could have been. Was it really an injury? Doesn't sound like it now, does it? Well, especially when he starts grandstanding for more money. Did you right. hear about that? Didn't hear about that, no. Did you hear him say something along the lines of he couldn't learn anything from Arn and Barry? I didn't. He never told me that, but I know he was very difficult to deal with. I should mention Nobody, put it put it this way. I don't remember anyone that I talked to, any of the wrestlers, who liked Sid Vicious. Wow. You know it's I may funny. Have been wrong. I mean there may have been some, but no one really had a kind thing to say about him. Somebody uh who we both know, not Ric Flair, because that's what everybody's yeah. gonna jump to, uh yeah. told me recently when I discussed Sid with him. They compared the way he behaved in the locker room uh, to the way Brock Lesnar does today. Okay. He, he was very, I'm here all about business. I don't care about any of this bullshit. I'm not here to be anybody's friends. Tell me what time to be there. I'm going to show up as late as possible. I'm going to leave as early as possible. My check's better clear. I'm out of here. Right. Would you say that's a fair way to 
categorize him at the time? Yeah, that that's a kind of a fair way to categorize him at the time, but I think he was a little bit more difficult to work with than that. Okay. As far as, you know, I'm going to show up and do what I have to do. I'm going to show up, not necessarily do what I have to do, do what I think is best for me. I should mention here that Barry was filling in for Sid when Sid was injured. And in yep. the process, he gets injured himself. And that's why we don't see Barry Windham tag with Arn against Doom at Halloween Havoc. So process that and what a crazy business this is. The main event at Halloween Havoc fakes an injury. So Barry fills in for him and in the process injures himself, losing his own spot on the pay-per-view and then has to work interference in the main event. What a fucking strange business. Uh, Barry is apparently upset about this too. And so in early October, he stops returning phone calls to WCW and many start saying he's probably not coming back to work. And WCW even started referring to the group as the horseman, uh, for a stretch of October, as opposed to the four horsemen in case he didn't come back. Tony, do you remember there being any concern that Wyndham may be done here? Yeah, there was a lot of concern. Barry Wyndham one of the great workers, really, of, of that time. I don't think there's any question. And had a wrestling pedigree with his father and understood the business. Uh, there was concern about that. L- let me also interject something here. When Sid finally came back from his injury and we finally saw him, I remember distinctly walking up to Sid and saying, hey, big guy, good to see you back. Because that was me trying to not be political yeah. and just trying to – and he said – that's one of you. So he knew uh-huh. what guys thought about him. And this whole story about Barry getting injured, it just blows my mind. Fucking blows my mind. In early September, uh, it's reported in the torch that Jim Hurd has told Ric Flair that he would be taking a month off after Starcade, and he's going to come back with a new gimmick. Tony, I'm sure we're going to talk about this a lot when we cover the Great American Bash 1991 but when do you remember first hearing that Jim Hurd wanted to change Ric Flair? I don't know the time, but I remember being in the boardroom that day and Hurd said, and this to me goes goes right into the same talk that he had about uh, the Hunchback and Long John Silver. And the he, he come up. And, yeah. Yeah. He, he said, he said, we're going to change Ric Flair's look. That look that he has is too old. He's been having that forever. We're going to cut his hair short. We're going to put a diamond stud earring in one ear. Diamonds are forever, and so is Ric Flair, and he could point to that diamond earring. And I remember us thinking, oh, that's fucked up. But I also remember we were all yes men, and we just kind of went with it. <laughs> I love that you're honest. Well, we were yes men, so we went Yeah, we were. Uh, so... That's what he wanted to do. I remember him. I distinctly remember him telling us about cutting his hair short, which eventually he did, and putting a diamond earring in, which I don't think he did. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. But that's what he wanted. And that was, again, I, I think even more than the heat only as the booker would have, that was more of, uh, that had more heat. Things that he would come up with that he would interject into wrestling had a lot more heat than what Ole would book. The Torch is also reporting at this time that Sting and Lex Luger were both actively campaigning against Ole Anderson, thinking he wasn't doing them any favors as Booker. Hmm. Uh, and he was originally starting with a pretty solid push for them. 
Do you remember hearing that they weren't pleased with Oli? Uh, I do not. I remember that there was always grumblings about bookings going on with the guys. And uh, I don't remember singling out Sting and Lex Luger. Uh, but I know there was, you know, guys were always unhappy. You know, I, I seem to think that maybe guys were unhappy because somebody was talking to them. Right. In September, WCW is doing a running the gauntlet concept on the Power Hour, and Scott Steiner beat Bobby Eaton and then Ric Flair before losing to Arn Anderson. The original plan was for a series of matches with Scott Steiner and Ric Flair, including Halloween Havoc. Barry Windham's injury causes all of this to be scrapped, and now Flair is going to tag with Arn in Barry's place. Obviously, Ric Flair was not happy about this. And Tony, the singles push of Scott Steiner has been talked about a lot in the past, but we've never really gotten a real answer behind why it didn't happen. Uh, Scott has said near since he thinks that Rick sandbagged him in the match. Rick says the opposite and says that he was just upset that if he lost to Scott on TV here, he was under the assumption and was told specifically there would be a payoff at Halloween Havoc. And that's what he was upset about, not doing the job, but that it just went nowhere. Uh, Others say that Scott didn't really care to be a single star at this time, and he really wanted to focus on tagging with his brother. What say you, Shivani? Well, I say that I tend to side with Ric Flair on that. I don't think Ric really uh, sandbagged Scott. Uh, and, And I do think Scott realized that he and his brother were a tremendous tag team as Halloween Havoc you know, would, uh, prove would show. Yeah. And not only that, when we went to the Tokyo egg dome, uh, and that great match they had, uh, there, but I, I just, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if we had such a great tag team and tag teams were very important. If look how many tag team matches we had at Halloween havoc Yeah, and tag teams were very important. They were the very best tag team. Why would you want to separate that right now? Uh, in October, WCW has several performers appear on Family Feud. Jim Ross, Sting, Brian Pillman, Z-Man, and the Candyman, Brad Armstrong. Mm. Tony, what surveys would Klondike Bill have done well with on Family Feud? Uh, ways to use a kibasi for $500. Would that be right? Okay. Okay. Uh, panties you have eaten. <laughs> that would be... <laughs> I was gonna panties s- you had swallowed. Uh, uh, you. <laughs> I'm going to get very vulgar here, and I don't want to get very vulgar. Well, you would have done really well on this if the topic was Deborah McMichael, right? Uh, probably so. I don't know if I, I've, if I don't know what I would have said, would have uh, agreed with the survey. Swing, okay. swing. Survey said. Okay. Three thumbs I don't know if I agreed with that. Three thumbs but, up. Uh, hey, you know, I was on Family Feud, I think, earlier that year. And uh, we had – this is a great one. We uh, opposed the uh, the glow ladies. Yeah. Yeah. And those glow ladies, they were tremendous. They were absolutely tremendous. At the end of the show, you know, they had one of them pinned uh, Sid and uh, – they would always grab us, and you know, a couple of them grabbed me and everything, and I'm thinking, wow, I hope Lois doesn't see this. But we had a good time on Family Feud. That was a, that was a pretty good deal for us. 
Uh, help I'm sure I'm sure Jr. would have said the same thing that we got a chance to be on Family Feud. Yeah, it's pretty cool, indeed. It was cool. Uh, help me understand Brad Armstrong's Candyman gimmick. Okay, I will. Uh, again, Jim Hurd says I want somebody to be called the goddamn Candyman, and we used to always mimic his voice. We want a Candyman, goddamn Candyman, and what he's going to do? He's going to hand out candy to the kids, like the Pied Piper. And we all scratched our head. Who could be the candy man? Well, it's got to be somebody that could work, right? So why not Brad Armstrong? And Brad, you know, being the great guy that he was, agreed to be the candy man. Now, I don't know if uh, he handed out enough candy that Jim Hurd was happy. But I can tell you right now that Brad Armstrong became the goddamn candy man. And I'll tell you this, uh, is there a better place to be the candy man than a Halloween themed show? I mean, if you're going to be handing out candy as your gimmick, you might right. as well do it on a Halloween show, right? Yes, exactly. Good, good call there, Conrad. Uh, around the same time, Cornell is openly upset with the uh, NWA management over one of his ideas, uh, being nixed. And the idea that was nixed from TV was that the midnights would feather the Steiner brothers. Um, and then they had Bobby Eaton run the gauntlet only to have Sid squash him in under four minutes. So Jim Ross even goes on the hotline and says something like if Cornette would stop whining so damn much about the way that midnights were being treated, then management may actually listen. Do you remember prior to Halloween havoc? We're going to talk about what happened after Halloween havoc briefly at the end of the show. But do you remember prior to Halloween Havoc, Jim Cornette talking about his unhappiness here? I do not. Uh, but I remember it being a topic of conversation that Cornette was unhappy. And I think you go back and you look at uh, the Halloween Havoc match that they had. Uh, you, you could just tell that Jim Cornette was not the same Jim Cornette that we had seen two, three years earlier when he first came into NWA WCW. Well, he's also working in the first match on the show. I mean, now, right. th- there's there's nothing wrong with that because it a lot of times sets uh, a big pace. But you have to remember a few years prior to this, they were main eventing and setting territories on fire. So yes, they were. It's not quite the same position on the card, and it probably doesn't pay nearly as well. Uh, a couple weeks prior to Halloween Havoc, the Torch reports that WCW is trying to get the Z-Man, Tom Zink, to quit. Mm. And they say that he's been, quote-unquote, jobbed out in the hopes they can embarrass him into quitting. And allegedly this is done because they want to get rid of his $3,000 per week salary. Tony, I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Give me a good Z-Man story. There's uh, lots of rumor and innuendo about Z-Man out there. Some of it involves Brian Pillman. You got anything you can... I have nothing to add to this. What are you trying to lead me into? I'm not trying to lead you into anything. I'm Bullshit. just saying if you Google Z-Man and Brian Pillman... In your Google machine, you'll get all kinds of different stories. So, uh-huh. I, I cannot validate any of those stories. You never heard about them giving each other the hot tag? <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I'm sure they weren't the first duo to do that. Well, they're not the latest. I'll tell you that. There's video evidence of that this weekend. But specifically, uh, do you remember in the late '80s, early '90s? Any sort of fun party Z-Man stories? Are you just going to sit there with a dumb fucking look on your face and let me drag you through the rest of this goddamn show? Well, drag me through the rest of it because I don't remember. I don't remember hot tag stuff. Okay? <laughs> but okay. I can tell you right now, if they say it happened, I believe it. 
more than I would what they say happened in the ring. Probably hot tag. I mean, you know, if you know, Tom Zink was a good looking guy, right? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, if you know, if you if you had a crush on a guy, wouldn't Tom Zink be a guy you'd have a crush on? Okay, I don't know if we're going to cover it uh, on the actual card, but Tommy Rich is tagging with Ricky Morton on the show uh, How here. come we're moving on to something else? Well. So here's what here's <laughs> where I'm going with this, okay? As he tries to move on to something else. Tom Zink's a good-looking guy, and if I'm Tom Zink back then, I'm going to take full advantage of me being a good-looking guy. So did he chew parking lot panties? Did he use a kielbasa and eggs? Uh, probably someone like the Z-Man didn't need to. Klondike did. He needed to. Because he was a big old burly Canadian guy. Tom Zink was tanned and a great mullet haircut and looked looked the part. And Pillman was good looking. And, you know, you just, did you you ever, just do did, what you need to do. Did you ever snuggle with Brian Pillman and Z-Man? I did not. They never made it. Asked to. They never made it. Where are you trying to go sandwich? with this one? Well, I mean, you're talking about how attractive uh, Tom Zink is here. I'm getting a little uncomfortable. Okay, he was. He was a good-looking guy, and <laughs> I think if uh, a guy like him could have gotten a lot of what, you think strength. a guy like him could fall in love with a girl like you? I mean, do you think that's possible? <laughs> uh, I don't know when we'll talk about it. Uh, Tommy Rich here. Uh, was tagging with uh, Ricky Morton on the show because Robert Gibson had suffered a much more severe version of Sting's knee injury, uh, and it was going to keep him out like 8 to 12 months. So Tommy is brought in for a short-term replacement for Robert, uh, and on the show, Paul Lee refers to them as the Rock and Country Express. Uh, Let's briefly touch on the importance of Robert Gibson here because I think, you know, when you're comparing – you know, anybody to the greatness of Ricky Morton, uh, it's easy to get overshadowed a little bit, but, uh, what was your opinion of Robert Gibson? Cause I think he's just clinically underrated because of how great Ricky Morton was. Well, Ricky always did the interviews, most of the interviews for the uh, rock and roll express. Robert wasn't that great of a talker, but they just seemed to be s- seamless as a, as a tag team. They seemed to complement each other so well. And Ricky was normally the guy that did the selling, and Robert would get the hot tag. And Robert would, when he got the hot tag, there would be a great reaction to what he would do in the ring. So he was a, he was a great ring tactician. He really was. Great guy. And I agree. I think he's very, very underrated because of how great of a seller Ricky Morton always was. And Robert could sell, too. And sometimes they would switch it out where Robert would do the selling and Ricky would get the hot tag. Hot tag here being Conrad a real hot tag in the ring, in the ring, not a Z man, Brian Pillman hot tag, which you know, you alluded about. to uh, a few minutes ago. Um, I just want people to understand the difference between a wrestling hot tag and a bullshit hot tag made up by Conrad. Go ahead. Keep going. Keep asking me these questions. I'm ready. I feel good. Uh, the original VHS Hold release. On. Take my hang on. Take another drink of the old red bull here. Now, go ahead. Uh, The original VHS release of Halloween Havoc cut the show down from 10 matches off the live pay-per-view to just six. And if you're watching on the WWE Network, that's what you're going to see is the Turner Home Entertainment video cassette release, which is only six of the matches. 
Tony, let me just freestyle a guess here. Is mm-hmm. the reason Turner only released parts of the pay-per-view like this to keep the video quality as high as possible and try to keep it to two hours so they could essentially record it in SP mode for you old VHS people who understand that? Yeah, that was the reason. And they kept it at two hours, and uh, it was also a little bit cheaper to do it. Sure. If you cut down the, the length of your video cassette. So that was a reason to do it. And you're right. It, it, it kind of made it a uh, kind of a bastardized version of what you saw on pay-per-view, you know? Absolutely. You know, especially when they do things out of order and all that, which we'll get into. Now, but there were 12. 12- now, Go ahead. I want to compare that, Conrad, <clears throat> if I could, to the VHS tapes of the WWF that were produced by Tony Schiavone. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You're laughing at me already. Here was the mindset, and it was a mindset that 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 I think Kevin Dunn and and, and Bruce Pritchard, who was my boss, agreed with, and and I I knew this. We would take an we would take an event like Halloween Havoc, okay, right, and we would make sure the main event was intact. You saw the entire main event for Halloween Havoc. The other matches you would see the other matches, but we would do a lot of pull ups in it and shorten those matches. You may have not seen the entire match. But you would see every match, and that was how we got, like, WrestleMania five and WrestleMania six that I worked on. That's how we got those to where you saw every match because right. we did a lot of pull-ups. We would, edit a sh- we would edit a videotape together, and we would say, damn, we're seven minutes over. We'd have to go back in some of the matches and do some pull-ups. And you do pull-ups by taking crowd shots and coming back to the match a little bit later in the match, and you would save, like, two or three minutes sometimes. Which we and don't. Which that's we don't how we do. did it. And the the Turner Home Entertainment people had no idea how to do that, or they didn't have the funds to do it. They didn't have the funds. What the fuck? Well, they didn't. I mean, they did. Come on, they just didn't. They just did. Listen, that's how we did it in the, in, in when I did the video cassettes in the WWF in 1989, and. They were better video cassettes. The Coliseum videos back then were better. Uh, there were uh, 12 matches total on the night mm-hmm. of Halloween Havoc. Uh, the first two matches were, there were two dark matches, actually. Uh, the first two were Tim Horner beating Barry Horwitz and Rip Rogers beating Reno Riggins. Uh, any fun stories you can share about any of these guys? Rip Rogers is a pretty fun follow on Twitter if you're into that kind of shit. Yeah, Rip, Rip was a pretty entertaining guy. Uh, I think I mentioned that Tim Horner was one of the more underrated wrestlers yep. in WCW at that time. I thought that at one time, Tim Horner and Brad Armstrong were as good a tag team as you would see in wrestling. Uh, I love Barry Horwitz. Barry Horwitz type of guy who was never getting a push, but he'd always pat himself on the back. We always knew that and would kind of do anything you wanted him to do. I always thought Barry was a, a pretty good hand. Absolutely. I Are think, you looking for anything else? No, no. I was just letting you to go. Um, okay. Let's talk about the opening sequence with the haunted mansion and such. Uh, who did that for WCW during the time? Was that Turner Home Entertainment who would have put together that graphic? Yeah, that, that was there. That, that was their lame graphic. You're right. Then they didn't have the money. No, uh, they didn't. I, I believe that you was now. their lame graphic. As a matter of fact, I, here's what I did in watching this. I, I'm, I'm watching it, and then I'm I'm thinking, man, there's. There's nothing but tag team matches going on here. I, I know I remember more matches than this, and then I looked it up, and 
and realize I was watching a Turner Home Entertainment bastardized version of Halloween Havoc. So I'm thinking, okay, this uh, this haunted house looks so shitty, this graphic of the haunted house. And I understand here we are in 2017, and the graphics are phenomenal now yeah. and everything. Computerized graphics are tremendous. Now we can look back and thumb our nose at graphics in 2000 or in 1990. So what I did, I went back and looked at the Royal or the uh, Survivor Series because that would be the next pay-per-view by the W by WWF, right? And I wanted to see what graphics they would have to open up the show. And they had just they had just still graphics of all the teams kind of coming together with Vince McMahon screaming the names over top of it and then they went to the wide shot. Uh, with all their ballyhoo, and uh, it wasn't that much better back then. The WWE did the WWF have uh, ghosts floating down from the second story to the foyer of the house? No, they did not. Oh yeah, they can stuff their shit up. Because that was Survivor Series. That was not a Halloween theme. Uh, I'm busting balls, you slap dick. Uh, when we're inside the arena, we see Paul Lee dressed as a vampire, and yeah. Jim Ross dressed as a gangster. Yeah. Is having the announcers dress up like this an Ole Anderson or Jim Hurd idea? I think it's kind of a let's announcer idea. Okay. You know, uh, we want everybody to dress up. It's Halloween. Just go ahead and dress up. And no one told us what to dress up as. So you got to pick out your own costume? Yes, I did. Uh, what shade of lipstick did you think brought out your best features? Okay, let me let me tell you this, you motherfucker. That was the Phantom of the Opera, which, you know, in 1987, the Phantom of the Opera, Andrew Lloyd Webber was a great, tremendous musical. And I've always, <laughs> boy, I don't want to go down this street, but I'm going to go down it anyway. I've always loved musicals. Oh, my God. Yeah, I have. And if you remember the Phantom, he didn't have lipstick on. His lip was deformed underneath the mask so we put that lipstick on to make me look like i had a deformed lip and it wasn't a guy in drag trying which i know it's what that's the way you want to go but i always love that and i always love the phantom of the opera you know the music of the night how's that this is fucking real life right now this is real life, and I I loved I loved Oklahoma, the musical Oklahoma, My Fair Lady, one of the great movies and musicals of all time. My wife and I, when we lived in uh, the W, when we lived in Connecticut. I worked for the WWF, went to uh, into the city all the time and saw Broadway musicals. Love them. Les Miserables. Are you a fan of Les Miserables? I am. I've seen I've seen Hamilton. Uh, lots of fun stuff to be had there. I just didn't expect you to say. On your own, in the same show. Mm-hmm. Goddamn, that Tom Zink was a good-looking son of a bitch with his body and his hair and his tan. Yes, I picked out my own lipstick, you dumbass. I love musicals. I'm just putting all this together. It's just a lot to digest right now. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting at you straight here. I love musicals. And had I been as good-looking as Tom Zink, who knows? I may have been dead of some disease right now. Um, so after Ole says he doesn't want heel announcers, why were you told they were going to try Polly here? Because this is Polly's debut as an announcer and, uh, you're, you're there. 
So yeah. talk, talk me through the idea of, I know he's never done it, but we're going to try him. Go stand over, get your lipstick on and go stand over there. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, I never heard Ole say he didn't want to use heel announcers. Where did you get that one from? I, I know you, you brought that up earlier, but I, I never remember that. Uh, it was reported and, in the torch that he didn't want to use heel announcers for the simple oh, reason that if you had someone very witty, like a Jim Cornette knocking the heel or knocking the baby face all the time, that it might actually work the other way. And they might, might start to think, Hey, these baby faces are dopes. So they wanted, you know, the announcers to call it more straight and not constantly ridicule the baby faces. Well, then I would, uh, I would imagine that was something that was pushed on only then by Jim Hurd. And I was used on syndication, JR. And, and then again, you know, uh, Paulie were eventually used on TBS. Did you take this as a slight that this guy in his debut uh, is getting the pay-per-view and you're up here with lipstick on the stage? Yes, I did take it as a slight. But I just, again. <laughs> yes, man, didn't say being shit. The yes, man, that I was. I went, I went, I went, went for it, you know. Put my lipstick on and strutted my shit. And- yeah, because I, I thought, I really thought, and you can go back to the Clash, the 88 Clash. And even the Great American Bash of 88, I thought Jim Ross and I did great work together. I would agree. And I thought the fact that they weren't letting me pair up with Jim Ross was kind of a slight. But what the hell? First match on the pay-per-view was Tommy Rich and Ricky Morton taking on the Midnight Express. It was Jim Cornette. Uh, prior to the match, uh, Rich and Morton give a pretty bad promo with you on the stage. And they're both dressed like James Dean with no explanation uh, Meltzer gave the match three and a half stars and said it wasn't as great as most Midnight Express matches had been recently, but he said that Bobby Eaton was still the best performer on the entire card this night. The hot spot in the match had Eaton doing a rocket launcher onto the entrance ramp, and then at some point, the Southern boys come down to mock Cornette with pillows stuffed in their outfits. Chaos ensues, and it's kind of hard to follow on TV, but at some point, the racket, the racket comes into play, and uh, Tommy gets the hot tag, and the baby faces get the win. Uh, what did you think of this match? I thought it was a match that really did a great job, and, I, and, I, and I'll go back to uh, to uh, Jim Ross and, and even Paul E. I, I thought it was a match that did a great job of putting over Bobby Eaton. He did some great high-flying shit, and I, I thought this was one of the – you know, Bobby had some great matches during his career, and I thought this was one match that really featured what he could do. That's what That was my takeaway on this. Uh, we, we don't talk about Bobby Eaton enough in, no, we don't. in 2017. We've talked about him a lot here on this show, uh, but do you th- consider him one of the best workers of the year in 1990? There's no question. Explain... Go ahead. He could do, he could do, I think we've talked about Bobby before. He could do anything high flyer. He could go toe to toe. His working punches were as good as anybody in the business back then. He was tremendous. Couldn't I, talk. Yeah. I've Couldn't heard, talk a lick. And I think that was a product of being from Huntsville, Alabama. Well, but yeah, he, I would get, the, I would get that. He went to Lee. It's not his fault. Um, that's a Lee High School. It's not his Lee fault. High School. Lee, Lee High School. Didn't Lee High School. They, okay. they crank out boys who can do that top rope leg drop. Call it motherfucker at Alabama Slam, but uh, wow. or Alabama Jam. But man, they just can't cut a promo. You got to get up to uh, Kentucky if you want to do one of them shits. Hey, gotcha. uh, talk me through this. I've heard some guys who are with the WWE now 
who really think a lot of Bobby. And I would press them like, man, why is why is a guy like Bobby Eaton not a trainer in NXT? Like, it feels like that guy, I mean, that guy knows how to put together a great match and give you something. But the rap on Bobby was Bobby couldn't explain why he was doing it. He just instinctively knew what to do, when to right. do it, and how to do it. But if you had to, you know, ask him to, hey, why did you do that? Explain it, tell us. He couldn't really tell you, but it was always right. right. Exactly. That, that's that's perfect about Bobby. Bobby could not take two guys NXT and put together a good, good match because he couldn't communicate well enough with those guys to be able to do it. It, it, it goes back to this. And I'm going to use a baseball analogy here. Ted Williams was the greatest hitter maybe of all time, but he was terrible about being a hitting coach. Right. Because he couldn't communicate to younger guys about it. He just knew how to do it. He couldn't tell you how to do it. So uh, I, I uh, equate Bobby to that. Let's talk about Tommy Rich. Uh, explain to younger fans who will see this and not get it just how over Tommy Rich was a few years prior to this. I get if you're just watching this for the first time and you see Tommy Rich or maybe you only knew Tommy Rich from his run uh, in ECW with a part of the FBI that you don't really understand how over Tommy Rich was in Georgia in the 80s. Kind of catch everybody up. Well, Tommy Rich, and, and, and I'll go back to, to Arn Anderson, and this is before Arn Anderson really started into wrestling. But Arn grew up in, in Georgia. And uh, in in Rome, Georgia, in Floyd County, Georgia, which is almost as redneck as Huntsville, Alabama, because they're very close to each other, just right across a little mountain from each other and across the line. And Arn Anderson used to say Tommy Rich was the matinee idol of the 1980s. And he absolutely was. He was the biggest baby face in Georgia championship wrestling. And they gave him the strap, albeit what, two days or whatever it was. Uh, So Tommy Rich... Great country style interview that people in Georgia related to. He had the looks. He could work. Uh, and he was a mega star at one time. And this was before the national the national promotions. This was back during the regional days of the territories. Let me ask you a, uh, a setup question here for the pay-per-view because WCW – uh, I had kind of an interesting setup here, and it mattered for this rocket launcher spot uh, where a lot of times you would, in the WWF, not have a ramp at all. It would just be an entrance way. Uh, sometimes you would see WCW crank out uh, kind of a nitro-style set where there's a small stage and a small ramp and then just an aisleway. But here for some of the pay-per-views in, at this time for WCW, it's a full-length elevated ramp the whole way from the entrance to the ring. And this is used for this rocket launcher spot with Bobby Eaton. Were you yeah. in favor of this setup or not so much? No, I didn't like it. I, I, I didn't like the, the ramp at all. But for that spot, it was tremendous. But I, I was in favor of that. I liked I the it guy, a lot as a I, kid. I always thought, the guy, I always thought, and this goes back to my days at the WWE, I always thought if the guys walk through the crowd where you could see all the crowd standing behind them or beside on each side of them, that made it look the arena look even bigger, or the fan support right look bigger. So I thought we took that out of it when we elevated them above the crowd. Real quick, let me ask this too, because there's lots of questions about this, and I don't know why people are so fascinated by this. But we got so many questions about the WCW letters at the entrance. Oh, they're crooked. 
They're not crooked. It's a fucking design element. They were supposed right. to look like that. It's not like, you know, and I know this is this funny, haha. Oh, WCW can't get anything right. That was the way they were supposed to be. It's not like they're hanging a picture and it's not level and they're like, fuck it. Good enough. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, that. Okay. Let me, let me, let me give my opinion on that. You are right. They were, they were crooked for a, a reason, but if the place, if the placement of those crooked, of that crooked logo took your attention to that crooked logo, then you're doing something wrong. I agree. It was a miss in execution, but it was right. on purpose. It's not, right. oh, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't even get this right. We didn't have a level. You know, that's not the case. Um, the network at this point jumps and skips a bunch of stuff. Let's briefly run through what they skipped because I don't realize a lot of you are going to watch this on the network. Uh, Terry Taylor defeated Bill Irwin in just under 12 minutes. Meltzer said the match was technically very good, but the crowd was dead for it. He gave it two and three quarter stars just because of the lack of crowd interest. Do you remember this match in particular? Nah, I, I was probably taking a shit. Uh, Jack Brickhouse was out to help with commentary for this match. Tell everyone who that is for the non-baseball fans who may be listening. And how did that come about? Uh, Jack Brickhouse, legendary announcer in Chicago of the Cubs. Uh, one of the first ones. And also Jack Brickhouse had done wrestling years and years and years ago. Uh, and, uh, because we were doing a show in Chicago and we're trying to get over in Chicago on WGN cause we, we started running a show an NWA pro show on WGN. Uh, Jim heard thought using Jack Brickhouse would be good because of his ties to wrestling and because how big and famous Jack Brickhouse was in Chicago and Jack Brickhouse was even before Harry Carey. As a matter of fact, they even worked together. But Jack, of course, was, uh, you know, was was elderly by that time, but was just a a a wonderful man. And it's one of the high points of my career to be able to work with him, being a big baseball fan. Let's talk about uh, Terry Taylor for a minute. He did an interview with the Torch prior to this where he says that he quit the WWF because they were burying him and basically says that they begged him to stay. He also says that his run as the rooster wouldn't hurt him in WCW. Uh, and he's sure of that because management wants to let all of that be in the past. And he even says something like, quote, fans won't remember. Um, how do you think Terry Taylor was received by fans when he jumped to WCW? Uh, I, because Terry Taylor's uh, past prior to the, the Red Rooster and the WWF, I think he was well received. I'm not so sure it really hurt him, but I think that the Red Rooster gimmick has kind of stuck with him, hasn't it? No, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I, I don't think fans do forget. He was thinking they would forget less than a year no. later. 27 no. years later, they have not forgotten. Okay. If, by them not forgetting, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Well, you'd have to ask think? Terry Taylor, but uh, has he done anything since that was bigger than the Red Rooster? No. No, he's not. But again, all right, uh, here's a comparison. The Red Rooster... As stupid and stupid and silly as that was in the WWE, you remember that, right? Absolutely. Compare that to us making Brad Armstrong the candy fucking the goddamn candy man. You forget that, don't you? I do. All right. So they knew even though they could give you a silly gimmick, they knew how to put you over and we didn't. Do you buy that the WWF begged them to stay? They thought the Red uh, Rooster was critically important to their business? I don't think it was 
know if they begged him to stay, but they probably wanted him to stay. You know, Terry, Terry's always been a pretty straight shooting guy. God, I've known Terry forever. Somebody mo- uh, note the uh, time right now and tweet it to Bruce. Uh, okay, so next Wait, up is... Well, hold on. Whoa. What has Bruce said about Terry? He is not a fan of the cock-a-doodle-doo man. Okay, well, yeah. Uh, next Terry up... Terry and I had our run-ins, too. We really did. Well, everybody in wrestling does. Yeah. Slap and, dick. And the reason I'd say Terry was pretty much a straight shooter, I thought he always... He was very... Put it this way. Terry was very honest with me what he thought about my work when a lot of other people would not be. Okay? I got it. All right. Uh, so the that's, uh, listen, my my relationship with Terry Taylor was a lot different than Bruce Pritchard's was with Terry Taylor. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up, Candyman Brad Armstrong upsets J.W. Storm in a few minutes with an inside cradle. Meltzer gives this one uh, a star in three quarters and says there are so few genuine upsets in wrestling that this made a significant part of the show. Hmm. Uh, how underrated was Brad Armstrong as an in-ring performer, and why don't you think he made a bigger splash in the business? Well, probably because he didn't have a gimmick, so we just turned him into the goddamn Candyman. <laughs> uh, J.W. Storm. No, he was, listen, I uh, I did some ring announcing at the Omni where Brad Armstrong and Ric Flair wrestled for the world title. Tremendous matches. Absolutely tremendous matches. Why wasn't he a bigger star in the business? I don't know. I can remember back, and, and I'm sure this is on the network somewhere, back in the old WCW Saturday night days, uh, Jimmy Garvin and uh, Bill Dundee did an angle to where one of them pulled uh, the coat down around Bullet Bob Armstrong's uh, arms, and the other guy took a trash can and hit Bullet Bob Armstrong underneath on top of the head with it. And it was just to set up a tag match, Gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and Bill Dundee against Brad Armstrong and Bullet Bob. And Brad Armstrong came out and gave us one of the best interviews we had had in ages. So I think maybe that he was just not positioned well enough. Because he was a good talker. He was much like a Tommy Rich, and they had that Southern drawl, that Georgia drawl, and that people identified with. I don't know, maybe that hurt him on a national scale, I don't know. Let's talk about uh, J.W. Storm. He wasn't around very long, but he had a great look. So I'm sure a yeah. lot of folks saw money in him because of his physique. Do you right. have any fun memories or stories you can share about J.W.? No, to be honest with you, I don't I don't have any, any memories of him at all. Uh, our next match is the Master Blasters defeating the Southern Boys in about seven minutes. The Master mm. Blasters are Blade and Steel. Blade yes, is sir. Al Green and Steel is Kevin Nash. Uh, Cornette's on commentary for this, and he's tormenting the Southern Boys, who are Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong. And at least in my estimation, the Southern Boys are probably one of the most underrated tag teams of the era. Uh, Meltzer gives the star gives the match a single star, but he does say there's real potential in the big guy, and that he showed some agility, and that he would need a new gimmick before he was ready for a real push because there had been so many bad ripoffs of the Road Warriors. Uh, what did you think of the Master Blasters, and when did you know that there was something in Kevin Nash? Well, I think we all knew there was something in Kevin Nash, and I think uh, WCW was uh, really attempting to find a good gimmick for him, for him, and that's why eventually Oz came to be. And Vinny Vegas and lots and of And Vinny shit. Vegas. Yeah. They were all looking because he could do a lot of great things. Uh, Al Green was a good guy, but I think Al Green was really – 
in the shadow of Kevin Nash. Sure. Uh, but Kevin Nash had something special. What about and it wasn't their- until they became Diesel that he really, you know, made his run. Uh, so I liked him. What's your take on the Southern boys, Smothers and Armstrong? Good, good wrestlers. But you got uh, you got the Rock and Roll Express. You know, I, I just kind of think they got a kind of got lost in the tag team shuffle. Good workers. Uh, here we go. Time for what we're really here for. Next up, we get your interview with Sting. Um, you're rocking that lipstick like only you can. And he flubs up, uh, pretty good saying something like, uh, he hopes that Sid's butt doesn't overload his, you know what? Mm. And of course this isn't even the worst thing that happens here. Next we see the black scorpion appear and then grab a female staffer off the steps and bring her to like a metal framed box with a big blue curtain. As Sting approaches a small pyro effect happens and the curtain drops, revealing that the box is now empty. Yeah. Uh, and then back behind Sting, where he originally was with you, there's a different pyro effect. And shortly thereafter, the Black Scorpion and the Lady run out from behind the WCW letters at the entrance set. Sting comes after him, and then the girl jumps into Sting's arm, so the Scorpion gets away. And this leads to Jim Ross and Paul E. trying to sell that they're not sure what they've just seen. Uh, Tony, how wrestle crap was the execution in this here? This was horrible. Uh, and, and and watching it again, it looked worse on television than <laughs> watching it live. <laughs> and this is just a case, again, I'm thinking that uh, television was not prepared for what was going down. I mean, you... you there, the, there was a lot of technical mistakes in that show, and I think one of them was the way the the whole Black Scorpion thing was shot. Yeah, it could have been shot totally different. Before, while things talking, you start to hear the Black Scorpion's music a little bit. He right. appears before Ole Anderson starts doing the talking. Um, the pyro, the second pyro is off. It just feels like you know, and then you kind of see him run around the letters. It's it's certainly production wise a little bit of a miss, but when I saw, yeah. you know, a lady being kidnapped and put into a cage, I couldn't help but wonder: Did Klondike Bill build that fucking cage? No, Klondike didn't build that cage. That was, uh, you know, that was a magician, and that was a legit magical act. But because of the positioning of it, it didn't look like a magical act, did it? Uh, no, I can't believe y'all paid for that. So this was a magician. This was a legit magician. You think it? Wait, hold. Whoa! You think the shit came out of my own pocket? No, not y'all you paid for that. Don't don't <laughs> don't smear that shit on me, fella. So the black scorpion this night was a magician. Yes, it was. And you don't know who? No, the same magician that we uh, down the road. Remember, he changed into a tiger. <laughs> Do you remember that? We'll what get, the black scorpion did. We'll get there. Who was the lady? Do you remember? No, I don't. She's probably the magician's assistant. She was she was a great actress, wasn't she? She didn't do bad, actually. Um, well, the good news is, uh, if you want to be the champ, you don't have to go find Ole Anderson or kidnap some chick. Am I right? You're exactly right. Here's how you can become the champ. Go to leatherbydan.com. That's leatherbydan.com. Create your own championship belt for only $9.99. That's right, $9.99. How Dan keeps prices so low is mysterious as the disappearance of the Black Scorpion, but much better done. Uh, what's not mysterious is how long it's going to take. Leather by Dan, 
Conrad.com can get you a custom championship belt in as little as 10 weeks. That's 10 weeks, Conrad, or nine if you live in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, because you guys are always one off. Leatherbydan.com even takes payment plans, so you don't need a lot of money out of your pocket to create your own very handmade original belt right here in the good old damn it USA. When I say custom, I mean it. You could do a Klondike Bill belt. Yes, Dan would make you a Klondike Bill belt, and I'm sure a Kabasi would be on that belt somewhere. A Deborah McMichael belt. I'm not going to even go into that. Even a Black Scorpion tribute belt that would not disappear, but would stay around your waist as long as you want. Or a slapdick belt, which Conrad certainly needs. Maybe you want to be the parking lot panty. <laughs> I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but maybe you want to be the parking lot panty champion of the whole world. <laughs> well, Dan can make it happen. Panty eating champion of the world. <laughs> anyway, good leather by Dan. He can make anything happen. He can make it fast. He can make it affordable. Good leather by Dan right now. Why? Conrad? Because Dan is the fucking man. Thank you very much. Uh, next up, the Renegade Warriors take on the fabulous Freebirds with Little Richard Marley impersonating mm-hmm. Robert Gibson, where Meltzer said the 17-minute match went 20 minutes too long. Yeah. Uh, he gave the match a negative two stars and said that Garvin had a bad knee, so he had an excuse, but no one else did. Mm-hmm. This won the worst match of the night poll in the Observer. What would you think here, Tony? Well, going back in, uh, in retrospect and looking at the match, it's amazing we got away with that renegade warrior Native American-type bullshit. Uh, they, the, the, the fans were on their – set on their hands the entire one. The renegade warriors were not over at all, in the least. And the fans just wanted that match over. And I agree. It was the worst match of the night. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how great was little Richard Marley? <laughs> uh, Rocky King, on a scale of 1 to 10 – is a 10 as far as great people are concerned in the business. Uh, as far as w- us being able to use him, uh, probably about a four. Next up, we've got Flair, Arn, and Sid doing an interview with you. Uh, and I know I'm going to get shit for this, but this was my favorite version of the Horseman as a kid. Don't judge me. You all love what you grew up on, and this is what I grew up on. Uh, what did you think of this incarnation of the Horseman here, Tony, with Flair, Arn, Sid, and Barry? Well, I think I still think the best incarnation of the Horsemen were the original ones. And to me, when I think about the Horsemen, I always think about J.J. being involved with them. Right. And, of course, he was in the WWF at that time. So it was okay. But I, 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 I kind of saw this, and this is not a slap in the face of Barry Windham nor Sid Vicious. But I kind of I thought we were wa- watering down the Horsemen here. Really? Yeah. Well. You know, kind of like, okay, uh, this guy's gone, so, yeah, you come on over, and you'll be a horseman. And, yes, the four fingers, and that was cool, and that still is. But when you go back and you take a look at who the original horsemen were, and, I, and I'm going to put Barry in this, too. Ole was one of the original four horsemen, but Barry, and it's not a slight on Sid, but I just think that, to me, Tully, Arn, Flair, J.J., Ole, and or Barry Wyndham, to me, were the horsemen. After that, 
You just brought people in to try to keep the horsemen together, and it watered it down, I thought. Uh, next up is the Nasty Boys challenging the Steiner brothers for the U.S. Tag Team titles in what Meltzer called probably the stiffest match in the U.S. this year. It also won Best Match of the Night poll in the Observer, and if you haven't seen it, you need to go out of your way to watch it this week. You will not be sorry. Probably my favorite Nasty Boys match ever, and I know they get a bad rap today because a lot of fans remember them when they were older and heavier, but these guys work their ass off here, and this match was very physical, and it even makes you suspend disbelief. Uh, there's one spot in there uh, where uh, Sags and Scott are in the top in the corner, and there's a spill to the floor that, as a kid, made an impression on me, and I've remembered it 27 years. Uh, there's a fun belly-to-belly off the second rope. Sags gets busted open hard way with one of three very stiff chair shots. The Steiners do a combination top rope bulldog that a lot of people thought was the move of the night. And then, of course, we get a Frankensteiner that won't exactly make Rey Mysterio jealous, but it was certainly innovative for the time. And uh, they retain here, the Steiners do, in about 15 match, fifteen minutes uh, in what Meltzer gives three and three-quarter stars. And he even goes on to say that he thinks Scott stole the entire show and should be world champion as soon as possible without rushing it to break up the team. Lots to cover here, Tony. Uh, first of all, are you as high on this match as I am? Yes, I am. Uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, it ages awesome, too. I, I mean, I watched it again this week, and I liked it so much I went and watched it again. So I've probably seen this like six times now total. Yeah, because I remember, uh, Conrad, I remember the Nasty Boys near the end of the run. And then I go back and I watch this match, and I and the first thing I thought of was, I didn't realize they they were this good. Yeah, at one time, I mean they were up down, up down, up down, and I know everybody likes to think of them, you know, towards the end of their run, you know, ten years after this when they're a lot heavier and and slower and more injured. But dude, they're working hard here, and uh, the Steiners I don't think get enough credit, and I know it's because you know they weren't with Vince maybe at the right time to get the big rub in New York, but. Man, how fucking great with the Steiners in 1990? Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Uh, and uh, to the point to where, man, I, okay, I'm watching this. I'm watching, re-watching this the other night uh, with Lois. And this match even got her attention. She's over there crocheting. And I'm, I'm, I told her, I said, you need to watch this match. And she couldn't believe some of the things that were done. The Frankensteiner. Yep. That was the finish of the match. Yep. If you go back and look at that again. He took it like a DDT. Yeah. It's like I, I'm, I'm surprised that that knobs didn't break his neck. Yeah. He took it like a DDT. Yeah. Didn't break his freaking neck. That's how good that finish was. Uh, but uh, the, the Steiners were tremendous. So I loved them both, man. I know just Great a, tag team. a lot of people will see this match listing and say, Ugh, nasty boys. You need to go yeah. fucking watch this one. Exactly. Uh, do you remember anyone talking about what Meltzer wrote about Scott here, that he should be the world champ as soon as possible? Do you remember any discussion of that in the back? There was no discussion of that in the back, but I can react to it right now to say, why didn't Meltzer have the fucking book? Okay. Boy, it's sure easy to book sitting on your ass, isn't it? Uh, on the network, we see your interview segment with Scott Steiner and Jerry Sags attacks him while he's dressed as a popcorn vendor. And this segment actually happened after the JYD match, which we're going to cover next. But on the network, it's in this order because Turner Home Entertainment edited out the Junkyard Dog match. Do you remember 
this segment in particular, I, I thought it was really good to kind of keep this angle going. Uh, and I know Meltzer and some others would say, oh, it's so obvious you could see it coming. But if they're not done, why not let you know on the pay-per-view, hey, we're not done with this yet. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, but uh, I just thought, well, here's what I didn't like about this segment. Why would a popcorn, popcorn vendor be on the stage? Be on the stage. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, That's they, what I didn't like about it then. And then when I looked at it again, I didn't like it. And then the placement by THE was just fucking awful. Well, here's the thing. It, it could have been fine if they would have done this on the floor, even near the ring. Uh, right. This would have been fine. And he could have just clocked him from over right. the guardrail and hopped over. But well, who, he ought to be a fucking booker too, buddy. Well, you just said you'd it, have been a make... great nine-year-old Booker Fuck back you. then. I love you. Uh, the next match on the show was Junkyard Dog uh, pinning Moon Dog Rex after a headbutt in about three minutes. Meltzer gives it a dud rating and says at least they kept it short, but it had no business being on the show, especially at this point on the card. Uh, and even when plugging this match on the WCW Hotline prior to the show, Jim Ross suggested that this match would be a great time to get yourself a cold beverage. Um, so this is kind of booked as intermission. What was the thinking in booking JYD here? If he's so poorly thought of or in this state he's in, well, you know, he, okay. JYD is poorly thought of amongst the dirt sheet guys and even probably among, uh, as far as a worker is concerned, even probably among us in the business who likes work rate, right? But I, I think JYD was very popular with many fans. For sure. There was no question he was. And we all, we were always the kind of uh, company, even uh, to our dying day, we were always the kind of company that thought that, well, if it worked in the WWF, it would work here. Right. And JYD was a big star in the WWF. And for Bill Watts, that's worth And for Bill Watts, yeah. Uh, okay, so He was a terrible worker, but he, it was a pretty good gimmick. Well, Ultimate Warrior was a terrible worker, too, but yeah. it kind of is what it is. Right. Uh, all right, so Doom has dropped the mask by this point, and now Teddy Long is managing them. And as we mentioned earlier, this was supposed to be Barry and Arn challenging for their titles, but since Barry's out hurt, Ric Flair is the substitute. Mm. And I found it a little odd, but they came out to Arn's music and not Rick's. Uh, Meltzer wrote, quote, In a sense, this match was sad to see Flair being phased down. The crowd still reacts well to him. But he's definitely losing that star aura. Uh, yeah, bullshit. Okay, well, go ahead. That's what I wanted you to mention here. Do you, yeah. you didn't agree that it was sad to see him phase down from the main event to a tag match against Doom? Uh, I remember it being kind of odd, but he didn't have less aura. The star aura. That's bullshit. He didn't lose it by being in a tag match. No, not with Ron Simmons and Arn Anderson and Butch Reed. No, I agree. Yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's bullshit. That's bullshit writing right there. Um, would you have preferred hypothetically to see Ric Flair and Scott Steiner on this card? Now I realize we're coming, we're, we're criticizing this on the heels of a fantastic nasty boys, Scott Steiner, Rick Steiner match. But if that was the original plan and you had Barry and Arn against doom and you had Ric Flair against Scott Steiner, would you have preferred that? Uh, 27, 29 years later, yes. Okay. Okay. I mean, he couldn't have that. He was injured. I'm just saying, you know, that's right. how they pivoted. Um, yeah. Meltzer was also critical of the you know, announcer. You'd have been a hell of a nine-year-old booker. Just thought I'd throw that in here. 
that's actually what you guys booked, but you let your eye play you baseball. Guys yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Meltzer was critical of the announcers here shaving time off of the match by announcing things like five minutes gone by uh, when they weren't even close to accurate. And he also is critical of them doing a double countout finish since they had just done that same finish for these same guys on TV. Uh, his line of thinking here is, why pay for the same finish you just got for free? Uh, how would you respond to these criticisms? Fuck Meltzer like everything else you've said today? No, I, I listen, I'm not the type of person that says, like Bruce, that says, fuck Meltzer, everything he says. Some of the things that Dave uh, was critical of, I, I agree with. However, I don't think that you paid to see this match. I don't think this match would have prevented you from buying another pay-per-view. I think sometimes we take a look at one match and look at a finish of one match. No one likes double count out. The fans even booed when they saw them fighting down the aisle. Yeah, because they knew it was coming up. No one likes it, but sometimes you you just had to do it, I guess, and you just didn't. And it it doesn't shit on an entire pay per view, does it? You like this pay per view, right? I did, yes, sir. Okay, so as a wrestling fan, you liked it, even with that double count out. The Still next there. the next segment is the backstage interview with Stan Hansen, and uh, in the promo, he spits tobacco on a small pumpkin, and the tobacco is just falling out of his mouth, and it's everywhere. If you want to gross out any girl in your life, except maybe Lois Schiavone or Klondike Bill's family, uh, just show them this interview. Uh, there are rumors online, Tony, that Luger and the Steiners were hot at Hansen about the tobacco juice. Do you remember hearing any negative feedback or discussion about that? They didn't like it. You're exactly right. They didn't like it at all, but we all kind of laughed about it, production-wise and booking-wise, because we all thought it was part of Stan's gimmick. It is. And, you know, it, he, he really overdid it. And I remember watching Stan Hansen matches thinking that, you know, he's spitting that shit out, and he's still swallowing the remnants of it. Yeah, has to. As he wrestles. So that had to be terrible. Uh, but, yeah, I know the Steiners and, and Luger didn't like that at all. Uh, Hanson is challenging Luger for the U.S. title next. And as a kid, man, I love this feud. Uh, this one goes around nine minutes, and it's probably what you would expect from Luger in 1990. Uh, Hanson is the heel here, and his protege from Japan, Dan Spivey, shows up and throws him a cowbell on a bull rope so he can use it on Luger. But before he gets a chance, Luger catches him with a back body drop, and then Hanson hits the lariat out of nowhere. So he winds up winning the U.S. title in the middle and clean. Uh, and Dave gives the match two and a half stars. Tony, how was Hanson to work with in 1990? We fans hear that he was notorious for not wanting to cooperate or do jobs. And he wins this one clean against one of your top guys in Lex Luger. Uh, Stan was easy to work with in 1990 because he and Ole Anderson were very good friends. There you go. And he would uh, he basically uh, liked Ole enough to he would do whatever Ole wanted him to do. Uh, Jim Ross explains in the match here that the Lariat is a modified clothesline. Uh, Tony, how was Stan able to get over a move that so many others used and make it special? Because there's a thousand clotheslines in every match, but when Hanson did it, it meant something. And I, I've always been fascinated when you can take something that's not a big deal, and when presented properly, it is a big deal, and that's certainly the way the Lariat was handled with Stan Hanson. Yeah, the Lariat was handled that way with Stan Hanson. You know... I don't know if this had anything to do with it in, in 1980 or 1990, but back in the 70s, uh, remember he broke Bruno San Martino's neck with the lariat. Right. You remember that? Yep. 
He didn't really break his neck with the lariat. Bruno had his neck broken, but it wasn't by the lariat, but that's what they said it was. So I think everyone thought that Stan Hansen's lariat down through the years was more legit than anybody else's. And uh, Stan had it was very snug in his lariat. And the reason Stan was snug with his lariat was, you know, I don't, not many people knew this. Stan couldn't, Stan couldn't see two feet in front of him. Right. Uh, he had very poor eyesight. And it was, it was funny to see Stan the gimmick and then see Stan standing in the backstage with Coke bottle glasses on. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, that is, so, and Stan worked very close. And so his lariats, you know, he never did catch you with the forearm or the fist or missed the lariat. It was close because he was working in close because, so he could see you. So I think that a, a combination of the of what we thought the lariat was from the days of breaking the neck of Bruno Sammartino all the way to him working close made it a, such a, a great move. Next up, we get picks for our main event from Paul Lee and Missy Hyatt. Uh, Tony, Can I ask something else? Can I yeah. ask something else? Yeah. It was his finish. It wasn't a fucking high spot like clotheslines became. Yeah. As we moved on in the business, clotheslines became high spots to where a clothesline didn't mean anything. But when Stan Hansen hit you with a lariat, that was the finish. And that's what put that move over. Now, go ahead. Why wasn't Missy in costume here? And if you got to pick out her costume, what would it have been? Uh, I don't know. I don't know why Missy wasn't in costume here. I would have put her in an Elvira costume. That would have been cool. Wouldn't that have been cool? With fangs and the black wig and... You know, boobs up in the air. And roll tide. Uh, Sid's I knew out. I'd get a roll tide out of you this week. Sid's out first, and uh, he's being introduced as from anywhere he darn well pleases. Yeah. Uh, which is one of my favorite lines to an intro. It stings out next, wearing one of the worst jackets in the history of wrestling, most likely. Uh, and Sid is pretty over here and gets a decent reaction from the crowd here in Chicago. And Sting is working very hard, uh, even diving over the top rope to the floor early on. But Meltzer wrote, Sid just can't work, but he looks phenomenal standing still. Hmm. Tony, it's easy to see why WCW is high on Sid, but was his work that bad to you? You kind of alluded to earlier that you didn't think he was ready to be a top guy, but I don't think it was that bad. I'm not saying that he's going to put on a clinic, but it's not the end of the world. No, it's not the end of the world, but... I go back to the fact that he would that he would be kind of confused about about how a match should flow. Right. There would be a couple of high spots, and then he would turn around and put his hands up to the crowd. And to me, that is to me that's telling me uh, a guy who's been in the business that he doesn't know what to do next. Uh, and he's not working with a, a polished guy. I mean, Sting is 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 great. But someone like Sid need to be working with a guy like an Arn or a Rick who knew how to call a match and keep him in it. Uh, and, start- I, and I got to thinking, who's calling the high spots in this? You know, it always used to be the heel called the match. Right. When you were with Flair, Flair called the match. Who's calling the match here? It's got to be Sting. Uh, and and I, thought that, I thought the match, although not bad, uh, was choppy at best. It gets a star and a half for Meltzer, uh, but he calls the angle that finishes the match a dud. Let's talk about yeah. that finish. At some point in the match, Ric Flair and Arn Anderson come out and distract everyone so Sid can take Sting down a separate aisle from the entrance ramp. And eventually, Sting 
comes back out, gets in the ring, and picks up Sid to body slam him, but then he collapses. Sting falls on top for the one, two, three, and the crowd is stunned. The fireworks go off. The balloons that are orange and black start falling from the ceiling. This is like a baby face has just won the belt. Uh, and then Sting, with his paint mostly rubbed off his face, comes out from the back with a rope tied around his wrist, which would lead you to believe the horsemen have tied him up. And Sid didn't pin the real Sting. So bear in mind, the two Stings have not been shown on camera at the same time yet. Only in WCW does this happen. The ref restarts the match. Sting picks up a belt and right in front of the ref hits Sid with it and then does a stinger splash in the corner and cradles him for the win. Sting is not dehued for using a belt. Uh, and then they start uh, to interview Sting afterwards and they give you a still photo of Barry Windham dressed as Sting, but they don't reveal that it's Barry Windham uh, facing off with sting so one is in complete immaculate makeup and identical tights and boots and the other is obviously uh sweaty rubbed off the paint got rope around his wrist that's the real sting so barry windham has started returning calls and now he's here and he's in the main event and uh the observer started with credibility versus creativity and pro wrestling you can't have both the more you have of one the less you have of the other Meltzer called it one of the most creative finishes in the NWA's history and even compared it to what many folks considered the gold standard, the evil twin referee angle from the WWF and NBC with Hogan and Andre. And Tony, as a kid, I love this, and I know people are critical of it now, but I thought it was very creative, and I was into it. And I admit, not showing both things on camera and now in hindsight uh, maybe doesn't age well. And then the babyface using a belt shot right in front of the referee to retain the title seems like a little much. But what did you think overall of the finish and the angle and the way it was presented? Uh, I thought the uh, a couple of things, and and this is going back, remembering what I remember all these years ago, and then watching it again. We fucked up big time not showing both stings until the replay. And I'm not so sure that was... By design. I'm thinking that was a fuck up. Right. But I'm thinking, again, they worked. They went backstage to a place to where there's nobody back there. Okay. There's there's not going to be an agent back there. There should have been. There should have been an agent on a headset saying, you know, here comes the other sting or here comes sting back out. Get the shot. But they just probably worked in the back got out of, of eyesight, and then came in on their own without anybody in the truck or anybody in production knowing what was happening. I think we really fucked up by not showing both stings until the replay. And I think we got lucky. We really got lucky that we got both stings on an isolated camera back then. Yeah. So I, I think that was very fucked up. I agree. The evil twin ref angle was one of the great angles of all time. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the belt shot, I probably, that was just probably improvisation there. And the, to me, what was disconcerting is the balloons coming down. Yeah. The balloons and if the balloons come down after sting comes back in and wins 
then they look staged. I understand waiting for the baby face, but again, I, it's probably I, I'm thinking this that the person in charge of the balloons and the fireworks or whatever we had coming down saw that it was a one, two, three, hit the balloons, and no one told him we've got an angle going on here. Now I like that. I I, I, I think that was planned, or I hope it was. But I guess the thing that's confusing to me is. Why do you have balloons and fireworks for a baby face to retain? Normally, right. that's just for a win. So why would you be celebrating a heel victory here? Right. I agree. Uh, the live gate for the show was 115 grand, which was the third largest gate of the year for WCW. The building was set up for 8,000, and they had 8,000 folks there with about 7,000 paid. So it was a capacity crowd, but about 1,000 papered seats. Across town, the WWF drew 8355 with 8176 paid for a live gate of $102,466. So while the WWF sold more tickets that night, WCW drew more money. Tony, do you remember this being a conversation in the office after the fact, like some sort of moral victory that you guys outdrew them dollar-wise? Uh, no, not really. I think we all realized that even though that we uh – at a gate of 115,000 compared to their 102, whatever, uh, that we may have made more money, but we had to spend more money because of production as opposed to a house production. show. Sure. But then again, you, you have to figure out uh, the pay per view. The pay per view buy rate. Let's do I think that. It was, I think it was seen as a, as a kind of a victory by us. This is really a good time for WCW, and a lot of people sleep on it, but it's worth mentioning that this show was priced at 1995. Whereas most of the prior NWA pay-per-views were priced at fourteen ninety-five, so the Great American Bash ninety, where Sting won the world title, did a one point seven buy rate, which is roughly two hundred thousand buys. So at fourteen ninety-five, that's a gross of two point nine nine million. Well, Halloween Havoc did a one point three, so it is down to roughly one hundred and sixty thousand buys. But remember, it's at nineteen ninety-five, so your gross there is three point one nine two million. So for all the time we spend on this show beating up WCW, this is pretty fucking smart. Uh, they know interest is down, but they know that the loyal fan base will pay more to offset the loss. Not only does doing this stop the bleeding, it actually earns them more money. Uh, Tony, do you remember there being a significant debate or discussion about the price increase for 15 to $20? I think, yeah, there, we, there was a, a big discussion about there was a faction that thought that we were going to uh, – make it too much money for fans to buy it. Right. I, I know that discussion happened. There was a lot of us in the office. I, and I can't remember what side of the, of the fence I was on. I don't even know if I give it, gave a damn, but I know there was a uh, number of people who thought that we keep raising the price. We're going to price ourselves out of the market, so to speak. And not only that, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of thought that when you raise your prices, it's a sign that things are not going well. Some people say it's a sign of things are going very well, but some of us on the inside thought it was a sign of things not going well just so we can make more money on it. Well, it worked out. Uh, the Observer fan poll had this with a majority thumbs-up rating. Would you rate this show, Tony, with a thumbs-up, thumbs in the middle, or thumbs down? Thumbs-up because of Tony Schiavone is the Phantom of the Opera. And the Steiner Brothers' Nasty Boys. And the Steiner Brothers' Nasty Boys. Uh, as a postscript to Halloween Havoc 90, we should mention that the Jim Cornette situation with WCW came to a head just three days later. 
Uh, he was upset at a TV taping at Center Stage in Atlanta, and Meltzer wrote that the reason he was upset was because Eaton was booked to wrestle three times that day. Uh, eventually, Ole made some sort of comment like, if you don't like it here, you can leave. Corny responded with something along the lines of, that's the best idea I've heard in a long time, and quit. Stan Lane followed. Bobby Eaton had a family and decided to stay to fulfill his six-figure contract that ran through that May, and this would put a end to a seven-year run of Eaton, Lane, and Cornette as the Midnight Express. There was a stint prior to this where WCW said they just wanted Cornette and wanted to let the other two guys go, um, but Corny protested and got new deals for all three guys. Well, that deal wouldn't expire until May, so Cornette and Stan couldn't work for the WWF until then anyway. But a lot of people thought this was temporary, and Ole even asked Eaton to ask the guys to come back. And uh, Jim Hurd wrote a letter asking them to come back. So in the meantime, Ole wrote TV both ways, one with them coming back and one with them not coming back. Ultimately, as we all know, uh, it didn't happen. Uh, do you remember this blow up? And was the thinking at the time, at least from your end, oh, this is Cornette just blowing up. He'll be back. This is just temporary. No, I remember the blow up. As a matter of fact, I heard portions of it. Uh, I didn't think it was temporary at that time. I thought Jim was pretty much upset and pretty much gone by then. That was my thinking. He had had enough. Does uh, Meltzer kind of have the narrative here of what happened accurate? Yeah, pretty much so. Uh, apparently, Cornette was all for Ole Anderson getting the booking gig originally, but then that turned sour in a hurry. Uh, supposedly, he hated the direction of the company and specifically the way the Midnights had been booked. One of the ideas he nixed was the Southern Boys smashing a pumpkin over his head at Halloween Havoc. Tony, do you remember Jim souring on Ole or nixing that idea in particular? I always thought Jim soured more on uh, Jim Hurd than he did Ole. Yeah. That was always my feeling. That and and I'm sure Jim and, and I've read Jim's book. Uh, the Grinch that stole WCW. The Grinch that stole Christmas is on there. It's it's a delightful read. Uh, he hated Jim Hurd, and I think uh, that he was more sour on Hurd than he was on Ole. And probably some of the things that Ole booked, he didn't agree with, and that just made it come to a head even quicker. The week after Halloween Havoc, the NWA board, which at the time consisted of Don Owen, Fred Ward, uh, Elliot Mernick, Jim Crockett Promotions, Steve Ricard, and Giant Baba, all sued WCW for the rights to the NWA name, alleging that WCW never formally applied to use the NWA name, even though they had been using it for the two years since they bought the company from Crockett. Uh, it appeared to be the NWA just angling for a financial settlement or a cash grab from Turner. So Jim Hurd sends a memo to everyone inside the company saying not to use the term NWA on any telecast until the situation was resolved, even though the board agrees, at least in the meantime, to continue to allow WCW to call their shows NWA Main Event and NWA Pro Wrestling until it's all worked out. But they don't want the letters NWA being used in newspaper ads or for Sting to be called the NWA World Champion. Uh, according to Meltzer, WCW is going to offer somewhere between thirty to $35,000 as a settlement. Uh, Tony, I'm sure we will cover this in great detail one day, but when you first heard that the NWA board was protesting two years after the fact, but didn't have a problem with the TV shows being named that, doesn't that just reek of a cash grab to you? 
Yeah, it was a cash grab. What was the NWA? And the NWA board? Yeah. It the NWA matter. board was basically just a uh, regional promoter, promoters in a handshake agreement. Right. And who wanted this money? And where, where would the money go to? And, of course, you know, I, I, I can tell you, and I told you earlier in this uh, in this podcast, that when I went to the WWF and wasn't going to get my money from Starcade 88, I threatened to sue – and they settled. Right. So if they're going to settle with me, they, they, they were just scared of all these lawsuits, and they decided to settle. But, yeah, it was a cash grab. Of course it was. It was bullshit. The NWA meant nothing. It was it, The NWA by that time was a fucking work. Well, that's what I want to ask. Does this feel like you know, the NWA suing here, the end of an era of sorts? It feels like the final nail in the coffin of the NWA to me. Would you agree? Yeah, it was. And it was sad. Because I grew up with Harley Race, NWA champ, Ric Flair, NWA champ. It meant something. Absolutely. Yeah. But it meant by the time that by the time that they apparently were trying for this cash grab, it meant nothing anymore. It didn't mean as much as WCW, I don't think. And that's why they were trying to hang on to something and get some money from them. Well, I remember thinking, OK, that's really sad, but fuck it. Let's move on. Let's move on to next week. We want to hear from you. What do you want to hear next week on What Happened When Monday? Cruise on over to us on Twitter and place your vote right now. We're going to go over those poll topics. The only way to vote is to go to Twitter and then hit us up. It's at WHW Monday. Uh, We had a lot of fun this week talking about all things 1990. We gave you four 1990 topics. We're going to keep it going. And next week, we're going to talk about 1991 uh, so let's hit it. Super Brawl 1. This was from 1991, and it features a card that has Oz, Dustin Rhodes, Elegante, Big Josh, Ron, and Butch finally facing off. The Doom is going head-to-head with each other. Uh, Steiners versus Sting and Lex. Bobby Eaton versus Arn Anderson for the TV title. And in the main event, Ric Flair versus Fujinami. What do you think about Super Brawl 1, Tony? I thought this was this was coming out of our big show at the Tokyo Eggdome, I believe. Right, right. And there was a big time uh, fuck over with the uh, the Japanese and Fujinami there. So this was kind of a a way to settle the score. Was this the debut of Oz? Uh, this is not the debut of Oz, but it's the pay per view debut of Oz. We talked about Kevin Nash as Steel from Master Blasters. The yeah. first version of what we're going to recreate here with Kevin Nash and this new gimmick is Oz. Mm-hmm. Dusty Sun, Elegante, Big Josh, who would later become Doink, uh, Ron mm-hmm. and Butch facing each other. And then as a kid, my favorite was the Steiner Brothers versus Sting and Lex. Now as an adult, it's hard not to enjoy Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson. Super Brawl 1 is poll topic number one. Poll topic number two, maybe the most controversial pay-per-view on our poll. It's Great American Bash 1991. And instead of Flair Luger in a cage, this is our first pay-per-view without Ric Flair, and we get Barry Windham Lex Luger without the big gold belt. Also on the card, we get Ricky versus Robert from the Rock and Roll Express, Nikita versus Sting, Elegante, Oz, the Diamond Stud, who would become Razor Ramon, and of course, PN News and Bobby Eaton taking on stunning Steve Austin and Terrence Taylor in what many people consider the worst match in the history of pay-per-view a capture the flag scaffold match what do you remember most about that night in baltimore great american bash 91 
I remember PNU's being so scared, I really thought he shit his pants up there on the scaffold. <laughs> really thought he did. Uh, there's no chance that this doesn't win. Poll topic number three, Halloween Havoc 1991. We got Big Josh. We got PN News. We got Johnny B. Bad. We got Bill Kazmaier versus Oz. We got Van Hammer, Firebreaker Chip, Luger defending against Ron Simmons. And, of course, the main event, <laughs> the Chamber of Horrors with Eligante, Sting, and the Steiners taking on Abdul the Butcher, the Diamond Stud, Cactus Jack, and Big Van Vader. That's right, the Chamber of Horrors. You have to see this to believe it. Halloween Havoc 91 is poll topic number three. Last but certainly not least, they finally decided to fucking kill Starcade. Starcade 1991, the Battle Bowl, the Lethal Lottery. It's all tag matches until the Battle Bowl, Battle Royale. Uh, here we have Mike Graham, the Night Stalker, Thomas Rich, Arachnaman, Firebreaker Chip, PN News, Steve Armstrong, Mr. Hughes, Abdul the Butcher, Buddy Lee Parker, Ricky Steamboat, Jushin Liger, Bill Kazmaier, Tracy Smothers, Marcus Alexander Bagwell, and of course mainstays like Sting and Lex Luger. Whew, a lot of wrestling crap that's on this. That's a star-studded lineup. When, when you- Ooh, 1991 is interesting, man. Let's recap. Super Brawl, Great American Bash, Halloween Havoc, Starcade. Those are your 1991 topics. Uh, Tony, if you had to pick one, what do you hope wins? What do you think will win? Well, uh, probably Great American Bash 91 because that was after we lost the gold belt and flare jumps and and the scaffold match. and uh, I, I think that that would be the one we want to talk about. I do want to say, though, in relation to Halloween Havoc 1991, which was in uh, Chattanooga. Chattanooga, Tennessee, yeah. uh, as, as shitty as that finish may have been, at the Chamber of Horrors, I still think having Abdullah the Butcher being electrocuted in that chair was a hell of a visual. It is a cool visual. And it's maybe, a hell of a visual. Maybe we'll get to talk about it next week. Go watch them this week, kids. It's WCW 1991. Go ahead and throw us a follow on Twitter and throw your vote down. It's at WHW Monday. Be sure to check out the brand new forum, WHWRadio.com. We're going to get Tony to register. He's going to get on there and call you all slap dicks and find a way to block you there, too. But if you'd like to be blocked on Twitter right now, just go ahead and throw him a follow. It's at Tony Schiavone 24. I am at Hey, Hey, It's Conrad. And Tony, it's about that time. It's about that time. And I tell you, this match featuring Stan the Larry Hansen and Conrad Thompson going up against the Z-Man and Brian Pillman has been a barn burner. And now a tag, a hot tag. Z-Man coming in, and here with all over his front, tobacco juice is Conrad Thompson. He must have been in a spitting match with Stan the Larry Hansen. They're going toe-to-toe. Here, whoa, wait, down, down the aisle comes Klondike Bill, and in one hand, he has panties. In the other hand, he has a kibasa. He rolls in the ring. He sticks the kibasa in the ear of Conrad, and the panties in the mouth of Thompson. Here comes the Z-Man in, and we are out of time. We got to go. The tape machines are rolling. We'll see you next week on WHW. What happened when? The world of 